Welcome to the Self Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at Self Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you are encouraged by this week's message. And thank you, band, for catching the moodiness and angst of Advent on the last week. I just love the casual. Hey, I, I just love the casual. I just wrote a song this week. I forgot I'm supposed to contribute a line so I can get in on the royalties and stuff like that when it gets sold. Just, I just need one line to just get in there. And now, uh, now Aaron has done the angst and moodiness for us. I can be all joyful and happy, which is my natural disposition anyway. So we're all good. And this week I'll complain about how, you know, the band was really too down this week and we need more light and happiness at Christmas time. <laughs> So we're coming to this conclusion of our Advent season, our Advent season of waiting. So for the most part, we we capture the idea, right, that Christmas is a season of waiting as well. Kids waiting for Santa. We sing songs like every mother's child will struggle to sleep tonight or however it goes because they're just too excited. You guys are waiting for maybe packages, parcels to to arrive or to get to where they're supposed to go. And I feel like there's a premonition that there's someone here who has some angst about something getting delivered on time. You're checking your tracking thing. And I just need to say to you, it's in God's hands now. Like there's nothing you can do. Just let that thing go. It's it might be fine, but, but you don't know. We've had so many misdelivered packages. It, it may not get there, and that will be okay. Advent is this season where we get to wrestle with expectations versus reality. We are in this season where we wait and we wait and we wait. But something else as well. I would suggest that along with that, Advent is also, it's an invitation, not just to wait, but to awaken. It's an invitation to notice what is going on around you in a way that you may not at other times of the year. And so I'm going to throw in something that probably doesn't make its way into many Advent sermons or messages. This is a lyric from Rage Against the Machine. Wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up. How long, not long, because what you reap is what you sow. I feel like I've heard that before somewhere. Did they make that up or did that come from somewhere else? This is them quoting the Bible directly. It's this lyric of angst of like, notice the world around you. There's things going on that don't fit. But, but, but in the Jesus tradition, it's more than that. Anybody can wake up, anybody can notice. But in this tradition, there's this possibility that goes along with it. Advent is an invitation to awaken to the possibility of God entering this world. It's an invitation to awaken to the possibility that God might enter into this world, that he did that 2,000 years ago, that he will do it at some time in the future, but through people just like you and I, he may do it regularly and often in this day and age as well. Advent is this season of waiting, but this possibility of awakening. And so we've been trekking with these guys that that are called the minor prophets. Now, if you're kind of new to the church thing, kind of new to the Bible, it's not minor because they're bad. It's not minor because they're junior varsity as opposed to varsity. It's not minor because they're bush league sort of prophets. It's minor because they just have less words than the major prophets. So a classic major prophet like Isaiah, Jeremiah, they might be 30,000 words. Even Daniel, like 11,000 words. 
these minor prophets, the longest, maybe 5,000, 6,000, and some of them just a few hundred words. They're just shorter. And so for that reason, they tend to be a bit more fringe. They tend to get ignored a bit more. If I were to ask you, how many of you guys, if you read the Bible regularly, tapped into some minor prophets in the last sort of few weeks, you might say, yeah, it's, if I'm honest, it's been a while. Uh, and so we've been looking at these guys that first started to speak about the possibility of a Messiah coming, this figure, this ruler that would come and, and change the landscape dramatically. So we started off with a guy called Micah. Micah wrote about 700 BC, and he said to, to a group of people, if you keep acting this way, there are consequences that come along with that. Then we followed with Zechariah as the consequences happened. The temple that they loved, that was a centerpiece of their life, was destroyed, and the new temple didn't look as good as the old one. And, and so for Zechariah, it was you know, wrestling with that issue. Why isn't, it, why isn't the story as good as we hoped that it would be. And then last week, Steve came and he worked with Malachi, this last voice. He came on ugly sweater day and he did not wear an ugly sweater to preach, which I have some issue with, but everyone has to do their own thing. And, and so he wrestled with Malachi's final voice. And now as we get closer and closer and closer, we're getting to that time, that Christmas Eve, Christmas Day type idea. And so we get to tap for the first time into one of those passages that you may think of as a more traditional Advent passage. Here we go. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. David was a famous king in Jewish history. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. If you know anything about this story, what do you think her reaction might be to the words, you are highly favored? Really? Highly favored? This is a young woman, maybe 15, 16 years old, in a society that did not tolerate people being pregnant outside of marriage. The message that will come to you is you will bear a child even though you're not yet married, even though you are a virgin, and this is good news. Mary's instant reaction to, to this news, highly favored, really, what do you mean by highly favored? And, and as this passage evolves, we get to see her absolutely natural reaction. Mary was greatly troubled at his words. Mary was greatly troubled at his words. This is some of the connotation of that idea of greatly troubled. If you have a text in front of you, it may say greatly troubled. It may use the word perplexed, which I think is probably a slightly better translation. It's this mixture of two words, terasso, agitated, stirred up a little bit, and dia, greatly, to the limit. I'm at the end of my rope. I'm pulling my hair out. Those are some of the kind of background ideas that may help unlock this passage for you. Some of you that have kids are like, wow, she's pulling her hair out now? Wait till the child is born. That's going to be like a different level. This is the easy part right now. Um, but this is where we see Mary's natural reaction to a story that she's been, been launched into. Greatly favored? This story is complex. This story is perplexing, perhaps, is the right word. And so maybe a question to reflect on as we get into this, as we watch how Mary deals with this, as we do some kind of crazy stuff, because we're going to jump all over the place today. It may have been a mistake, but I've made mistakes before, and it somehow worked out okay. So hopefully we land in a good place. But 
think about this as we kind of deal with this passage. What do you do with a perplexing story when something gets shaped in your life that isn't as you would want it to be, that you have uncertainty about? How do you deal with that? How do you deal with it when the marriage isn't working as you'd hoped? When raising kids is more difficult than you expected? When you're a grandparent and your kids don't raise kids in the way that you would raise kids? How do you deal with it when, when things, the pieces don't feel like they fit together? Like you've got like the puzzle pieces everywhere, but it doesn't really make sense as to where they fit in the overall scheme of things. What do you do with that? Because I would suggest Mary has been cast into a story very like that. It isn't simple. She has nine months of being pregnant outside of being married and people will talk. There's the complexity of what the story will look in the future. She will give birth to a child who will eventually go on to be crucified and die. And even in resurrection, there is a tension to this story. This story is only going to get more perplexing in some ways. And Mary is cast into this as a 16-year-old. And for us to sit here and pretend, oh no, this is normal. She is highly favored. Well, yes, I can go with that. But, but at least initially, that's, this story doesn't feel like that. And the angel goes on to unpack a little bit of this story for her, and I would suggest that launches us a little bit into how Mary deals with this perplexing story, how she handles it. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. That perhaps is in itself perplexing, But what the angel goes on to say, maybe even more so, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Now this is not just a perplexing story. This is a perplexing story that has no natural evolution outside of some kind of divine intervention. This story cannot happen in natural terms. Yes, Jesus is descended from this famous King David, both on his mother and his father's line, but Jerusalem and Judea is under Roman rule. There are no kings in the old sense anymore. This thing doesn't matter anymore. And yet this angel's coming and saying, he's like, no, this is all going to take shape. Mary's perplexing sort of situation is, is based on a couple of things. One, what it means for her personally. And two, some sense of how can these things even happen? Who's going to control the story? Who's going to lead the story to get to this point in the future? Mary gets landed in this perplexing situation. And yet this angel comes and says to her, Mary, this story isn't just about your story. This story is broader than your story. This story is bigger than your story. And I would suggest that maybe knowing that is what gives Mary the ability to walk through this perplexing story and to to maybe the word is to be okay. I have this philosophical statement that I make to myself regularly when I find myself in self in time where I just feel perplexed. It's this one. If in doubt, zoom out. If in doubt, zoom out. It works in so many situations. It works around maps. If you feel yourself like in this area that you're not sure where you are, you zoom out a little bit, it gives you a little bit more context. It works in life when you're dealing with a situation with a family member, something like that, where you want to blow up and explode. You're like, okay, 
let's get some perspective. Let's pull it back a little bit. Am I going to be concerned about this in a couple of days, in a couple of years, all those different things? I've tried working it. Some of you know I like to dabble in stocks and stuff like that. I've tried using it there. doesn't work for me there. Just so you know, that's a miserable failure. But as a general principle, it does work. This is a picture of a couple of stock charts for those of you that are interested in those kind of things. And this is that big tech bubble crash back years ago, which everyone remembers. It's like everything, everyone's money disappears. And this is it based on the last sort of 20 years. When you zoom out, you get a better perspective of what is going on. And it is true in multiple areas of life. What I would suggest the angel's words to Mary enable her to do is to zoom out a little bit and see her story in the perspective of this grander landscape. And I would suggest it's easier when you and I do the same thing. So to give us a picture of just how big this story of Mary's is, this big, this divine story is, I want to take us back to maybe the first moment that this idea of Messiah develops where maybe the first moment where this idea of a future king that will come and change the landscape develops. And it's going to get a little weird here because the the initial passage makes sense, but the context behind it is massively unusual, even in the context of the Old Testament, which has some unusual stories. So if you have a Bible, you can jump to Numbers chapter 24. I'm going to take this completely out of context and then we'll give it some context. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob and a scepter will rise out of Israel. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob and a scepter will rise out of Israel. To someone reading this or hearing this around 1400 BC, the first implication of this language like star would speak of a king. It's actually a a word taken from another culture. The Babylonians called their king the day star and this would automatically be like, okay, we're talking about some kind of ruler and a scepter would give it that same kind of language. This is this promise that the story is going to change centered around a ruler who will come and change the story through all of the things that he is called to do. But let's go back and look at the context of who says this and why they say it. Because as I say, it's, it's a little bit unusual. We're going to go back to Numbers 22. We hear that the Israelites, this group of people that have left Egypt, have traveled to the plains of Moab, a place nearby, and camped along the Jordan across from Jericho. So some of those names may be familiar. If they're not, that's okay. Now Balak, a king, son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites, Amorites were a warring people that Israel had conquered. And Moab was terrified because there were so many people. Indeed, Moab was filled with dread because of the Israelites. This King Balak sees a new group of people on his doorstep. They have conquered some pretty nasty opponents and now they're coming for him. And so what does he do? The truth is that what you did to your opponents in the 1400 BC era is probably very different from how we deal with it today. Today, we go and we talk about them on Twitter or something like that and say how terrible they are. They didn't have that then, so they did something else. In about 1400 BC, what you did is you found someone who would curse them, as unusual as that sounds to us. And so what we read is, this is Balak's message to a prophet called Balaam. A people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the land and have settled next to me. Now come and put a curse on these people because they are too powerful for me. 
Perhaps I will be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land, for I know that whoever you bless is blessed, and whoever you curse is cursed. This prophet Balaam that the message is sent to has a reputation. When he says things, those things tend to work. When he does things, they tend to happen. And so Balak sends a message to Balaam, who, let me say this, is a couple of weeks' journey away. He sends his representatives two weeks' journey to get Balaam to come back, which would take him about four weeks to curse this new group of people. Now, the chances are that you and I, 21st century Westerners, we hear language like curse and blessing, and it may be that we're like, I don't know about that. But what we have to accept is that's, in the weight of whole history and whole geography of the world, a fairly niche view. For the most part, this stuff does mean something to lots of people and has meant something to lots of people for generations. First time I went to the Philippines, I was sat in a house with a man who had lived in a basement for 20 years. He was very pale because he had almost no sunlight. And when I asked some of his story, what I was told by his family members was, well, he was adopted by a local witch doctor when he was a couple of years old. And the village has stories of how the two of them would fly down from the mountains and walk back along the top of the trees. So me as a 19-year-old Westerner, I sat there and I laughed hysterically when I heard this story. And yet what I watched was everyone else that had been involved in different cultures took the story deadly seriously. My perspective was very different from the perspective of the rest of the world. And in this culture, it would be definitely true that the idea of blessings and curses were very present in their everyday thinking. Balak has a problem. His way of dealing with it is to find Balaam who will come and he will put a curse on the people. I know that whoever you bless is blessed and whoever you curse is cursed. So let's see how the story moves on. Balak has sent representatives to Balaam. What will Balaam's response be? To be fair to Balaam, initially he does the right thing. He asks God. It seems like he has this conversational relationship. Balaam said to God, Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, sent me this message. Behold, a people has come out of Egypt and they cover the face of the land. Now come and put a curse on them for me. Perhaps I may be able to fight against them and drive them away. But God said to Balaam, do not go with them. You are not to curse this people for they are blessed. Is there anything unclear about what God says to Balaam? God is fairly clear on what the next steps are for this journey. But Balak is not a guy that is used to taking no for an answer. So when he hears Balaam's no, Balak sent other officials, more numerous, more distinguished, another two-week journey. They came to Balaam and said, this is what Balak, son of Zippor, says. Do not let anything keep you from coming to me because I will reward you handsomely and do whatever you say. Come and put a curse on these people for me. I will reward you handsomely. We have a prophet who is fairly clear on what he's supposed to do, and now a very wealthy king who is very clear on what he was willing to offer a prophet who will do what he wants him to do. This story begins with a wayward prophet looking for a payday. He's a wayward prophet. He's looking for a payday. So what will he do? Balaam again asks God what he should do, what the next step should be. And for some reason, God tells him to go, but then is obviously displeased when he does. Balaam got up in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the Moabite officials. But God was very angry when he went, and the angel of the Lord stood in the road to oppose him. 
Balaam was riding on his donkey and his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand, it turned off the road into a field and Balaam beat it to get it back on the road. So picture yourself making a two-week, three-week, four-week journey to go and curse this group of people in the hopes of getting a payday and suddenly your reliable donkey just shifts off course, no longer enjoys the road that it knows to walk on, is now in the middle of a field. I told you this story was going to get somewhat interesting, somewhat confusing. Okay, this happens a couple of times and then finally, on the third time, the Lord opened the donkey's mouth and it said to Balaam, what have I done to make you beat me these three times? Now the donkey is talking. Balaam answered the donkey and I don't know what Balaam's mental state is at this point because he's like, I'm, I'm having like full-on conversations with this donkey. This is very Shrek-like. I would love to be able to do the donkey's voice. Like, I'm a donkey. I can't, I can't really do it. Can't, I struggle with American accents. Anything else I'm fine with. Balaam answered the donkey, you have made a fool of me. If only I had a sword in my hand, I would kill you right now. In Balaam's eyes, all of the faults of this journey are on the donkey. Like he's like, if I could kill you, everything would be fine. And the story continues. Then the donkey said to Balaam, am I not your own donkey, which you have always ridden? I love this donkey. This is like a philosophical donkey. He's like asking poignant philosophical questions. Am I not your donkey? It's like, is it rhetorical? I don't know. Which you have always ridden to this day? Have I been in the habit of doing this to you? And, and Balaam's answer is kind of like that grumpy, no, I suppose not. Then the angel, then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with his sword drawn. So he bowed low and fell face down. This story is centered around a wayward prophet who is being asked by a wealthy king to come and curse a group of people who are told, we are told are not cursed, but blessed. And the hero of the story is a donkey. The hero of the story is a donkey who sees what a prophet cannot see. And this is Balaam's moment. He bowed low and he fell face down. The angel of the Lord asked him, why have you beaten your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to oppose you because your way is perverse before me. And that word perverse is a very strange one. It's almost untranslatable. I wanted to give you a picture image of what exactly it means. And the best I could give you was this guy, Evil Knievel, a hero to all, obviously famous for jumping over lots of cars or lots of buses, but doing a thing like following a career that when you look at it, you're like, this can only end badly. I don't care that America has the highest ratio of like doctors to daredevils in the world. It's still a dangerous profession. It's still a profession where you're like, okay, surely there's going to be an end here that's bad. This is kind of the language that Numbers uses about this prophet Balaam. You are following a direction which can only end one way. You need to turn around. You need to fix this. Evil Knievel said about himself, you can't ask a guy like me why I performed. I really wanted to fly through the air. I was a daredevil, a performer. I loved the thrill, the money, the whole macho thing. All of these things made me Evil Knievel. He kind of tries to tap into why he is the way he is. The only motive we can give to Balaam is simply this. Balak has lots of money and he wants that lots of money. That seems to be his only motivation for the perverse way he acts. 
The angel of the Lord asked him, why have you beaten this donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to oppose you because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned away from me these three times. If she had not turned away, then by now I would surely have killed you and let her live. I would have killed you and let her live. This story begins with a wayward prophet looking for a payday until he's redirected by a talking donkey and an angel. This story is strange. It is weird. There's something about it. They were like, wow, what am I even reading here? And yet, this is the narrative that God uses to bring us to the point that we started, of, uh, started at, this first moment where this idea of Messiah is maybe cast into the world. This prophet is about to say something startling, so startling that when we read it, we're like, wow, what does this look like? Here we go. I have sinned, Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, for I did not realize that you were standing in the road to confront me. And now if this is displeasing in your sight, I will go back home. But the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with his men, but you are only to speak what I tell you. So Balaam went with the princes of Balak. He arrives, Balak welcomes him. When Balak heard that Balaam was coming, he came out to meet him at the Moabite city on the Arnon border at the edge of his territory. He said to Balaam, did I not send, for you, send you an urgent summons? At this point, it's probably been at least eight weeks since he first sent a messenger. Why did you not come to me? Am I really not able to richly reward you? See, I have come to you, Balaam replied. But can I say just anything? I must speak only the word that God puts in my mouth. Then Balaam lifted up an oracle saying, this is the prophecy of Balaam, son of Beor, a prophecy of a man whose eyes are finally open. The prophecy of one who hears the words of God, who has knowledge from the Most High, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who bows down with eyes wide open. I see him, but not yet. A star will arise out of Jacob. A scepter will arise out of Israel. Balaam gets to be the first one that articulates this idea of a coming Messiah in this particular way. And he's not even doing a particularly good job of following God for himself. This story has worked through a prophet that doesn't want to obey God, a king who doesn't want to obey God, and a donkey that talks and an angel standing in the middle of the road. It brings in all of these different factors. And yet when we ask the question, who is in control of this story? The answer is fairly simple. It seems like everybody else is uncertain about the story, but God has never lost control of this story. It seems like God is shaping this story exactly where he wants it to go. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He creates this story that brings us to this point, And we get to see him in control of the story. And it means we can ask the question, will he stay in control of that story as it continues to shape? And our experience up to now says, yes. Yes, this story is still his to control. He is still keeping his hand on the direction of this story. It is flowing in the direction that he wants it to flow in. And yet for people immersed in the story, doesn't it just take a long time? Doesn't it just meander? And doesn't it do things you don't expect it to do? A star will come out of Jacob. I'm sure people that saw David as this great king when he did all of the wonderful things he did thought, oh, finally the answer is here. David is this star. He's creating this new story. He is the Messiah that we were promised. And yet, look at some of the language that appears right after David's reign a couple of hundred years. 
A shoot will come out from the stump of Jesse, clearly not David. He didn't do what they expected him to do. For his roots, from his roots, a branch will bear fruit. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. They're still wrestling with this. The world doesn't look like we want it to look. We're still waiting. We're still hoping that the wolf will lie down with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, the young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. An infant will play near the cobra's den and the young child will put its hand into a viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Even in amongst all they've seen, even in amongst this prophecy that was given years ago, they're still waiting, they're still waiting. They wait and wait and they wait some more. And one of the most surprising things to Jesus' followers when it came their turn to experience their part of the story was that they went back to waiting. Surely Jesus was supposed to bring certainty in all of this. Death, resurrection, surely there is no more waiting after that. And yet it goes back to waiting. Again, Jesus' earliest followers experienced a surprising return to waiting. And so stories like this appear in the gospel narrative, stories that came from Jesus' own mouth. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. Be on your guard and stay alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. It is like a man going on a journey who left his house, but each put each servant in charge of his own task and instructed the doorkeeper to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the master of the house will return, whether in the evening, at midnight, when the rooster crows, or in the morning. Otherwise, he may arrive without notice and find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to everyone, keep watch. These stories start to emerge in the church that is wrestling with, why isn't Jesus coming back? Why are we waiting again? The first people waited and waited and waited, and now we wait and we wait and we wait some more. This story doesn't finish when you think it should finish. It takes longer than you think it should take. It meanders in ways that you don't feel it should meander. It doesn't always have the direction that feels predictable. And yet it seems so simple back here when someone said, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob and a scepter will rise out of Israel. And we move through this first advent of Jesus' arrival. And we move through a second advent that we still wait for. And in amongst all of that is Mary's story that we started with. How does she feel in this moment? How does she take a story that is perplexing, that must have been confusing, and say the old story matters? I get to see how God has worked in the, in the past. And yet, how does she do that while accepting she may not get to see all of its conclusions in the future? These, this is her articulation in her Magnifica after the angel pours out just how much her story is impacted by the bigger story. My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble estate of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised 
our ancestors. My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. All generations will call me blessed. In the midst of her perplexing story, her own perplexing story, Mary is invited into this bigger story and she gets to look at that story and say, God, you are doing a good thing here. In the midst of all that I don't understand, you are at work, both for me and for your people. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful. Mary, it seems, in her moment of uncertainty, in her moment of what does this story mean, in a moment of being at the end of her rope, of tearing her hair out, gets to do this thing. She gets to, when in doubt, she gets to zoom out. She takes this bigger story and she makes it her own. And so for my question for us this Christmas season is centered around this. A couple of weeks ago, I said to you, maybe you have angst with your story at the moment because that story is still growing. It's not finished and, and, and so God is still at work. I guess my question for Mary and for us would be, how do I stay patient in a growing story? How do I stay patient in the midst of that? When I'm convinced the story should be concluded already, when I'm convinced that it should be done, when it, when it should be fixed, when it should be right, how do I stay patient? How does Mary, in this moment, stay patient through nine months of gestation? How does she stay patient when she has the funny looks from family members? How does she stay patient through Jesus' years of teaching? How does she stay patient through crucifixion? How does she stay patient through resurrection? And then Jesus remarked that, well, I'll be leaving again now. This story is so perplexing. And yet, how does she stay and continue to believe that the story will develop? I would suggest that in perplexity, we need tools to survive. What might we do in this Christmas season that we've talked about as a force multiplier in this season that can take the bad and stir it up and make it worse? In a season that can tend to highlight all of the things that we are struggling with, all of the things that we want to fix. What can we do? practically that helps us? How can we ground ourselves in this bigger story? How do we, when in doubt, how do we zoom out? A couple of things for you. I like to give things in, no, I never give things in three. I hate giving things in three, but I will give you three practices. The one is, I might invite you to reflect. For those of you that would say you're following Jesus, I would like you to reflect on the ways that God has been involved in your story in the past perhaps in the story of this community or another community in the past? How has God been good? How has he dealt faithful with you, faithfully with you? How have you seen him at work? Seeing him at work in the past is one of the best ways to remain faithful and to believe that in this time of perplexity, he may just be working now. Whose stories have you heard? How have you seen him in the live, work in the lives of other people? How can that give you this sustenance to say, oh, okay, I can continue. One of my favorite things to do to reflect on God's goodness to me is, is I love little things like this. These are rocks that I picked up from one of my favorite places on earth. It's called Travone Bay in Cornwall in England. It's a place where I've just experienced God's goodness and his presence. And just having these rocks by the side just gives me this tactile awareness. I have remembered the ways that you have moved. And it's interesting that people have done things like this for thousands of years. Some people called them altars. Some people called them cairns. But they are ways of remembering what has happened in the past. It doesn't have to be physical. Sometimes in the Bible, they use the language of an Ebenezer, a thing where God has been present. 
Reflection is this remembrance that God has moved. It's what Mary does when she says, oh, this is part of an older story. God is continuing to be good to his people. And when you reflect, you get to do this second thing. You, you get to, to go through this process of giving thanks. And even if you're not someone who's following Jesus, I would suggest giving thanks is one of the most wonderful things you can do. It's this reminder that there are so many things in this life we are presented with to be thankful for. And that those are there even when things don't always fit in the way that we would like. One of the movies that my wife Laura and I have some controversy over is this movie One Day. I love it. She's not as big a fan. It's this movie that has definitely some tensions and it's a better book than it is a movie, but it, it takes snapshots of this couple for every, like the whole of their lives, just one day a year, St. Swithin's Day, July 18th. And every year you get to see where they're at. And some years he's doing great, some years she's doing great. Some years they're together, some years they're not. But there is always this tension that builds until finally they come together and you think the story's gonna meet its natural resolution. And then riding to work one day, she's hit by a bus and she dies. And then you get to see the rest of his story Shape. You get to watch him as he deals with what his grief means for him and all of those different things. And then right at the end of the movie, they throw you back to the very beginning of the story. And you get to realize that there's this possibility that they may never stay in touch. The story might end in that one day of first meeting. It may just, that may be it. And you have this deep feeling, oh, I know the story's got tension. I know the story's painful at times, but I want it to happen. Don't leave her, run after her, go and get her contact details, go and stay in touch with her. And then you hear the footsteps as he runs up to talk to her and you're like, oh, thank goodness. Even though you know the story is painful, you realize there is so much to be thankful for. Giving thanks is maybe one of the most important things as human beings that we get to do. We get to be thankful for the goodness in our story, even when it doesn't feel perfect right now. Some of you will know that I've said at different points that that good emotions... Uh, good stories are kind of like Teflon. If you don't take time to acknowledge them, they tend to slip out of your memory. They don't lodge in our system or whatever the term for that is. Whereas bad experiences, they're more like Velcro. They glue to you. That's why you can still remember the first horror movie you ever saw, maybe some kind of image, some kind of story. It sticks with you very quickly. Gratitude, giving thanks is this way we get to take the stories and make them real in our own lives. We get to reflect on the story. We get to give thanks for the story. It's a healthy practice regardless of your faith journey. And maybe after that, we get to rest in the story. We get to rest in the story. Think about how we talked about the story of Balaam and Balak, all of its weirdness. In the midst of that weirdness, that kind of crazy story, seems like God is still fully in control of it. We get to believe that even in the midst of our stories that seem weird, strange, unusual, God is still in control of the story. Reminds me of a river. This is the Amazon River. This is its delta, 120 miles wide at its widest point in rainy season. Beyond comprehension for a river. It's a thing of enormous size. And sometimes my feeling is I can swim against the river. I can direct it, I can work on my little old human muscles and I can make this river go where I want it to go. And it seems like the overwhelming narrative of scripture is that that's wrong. That the God of the universe will shape this story where it needs to go. 
He's been shaping it for years. It may meander at times. It may be confusing and perplexing at times. But the story will end up where it needs to end up. When you get lost in your own perplexing story, grounding yourself in this bigger narrative is maybe the thing that helps us get through. If in doubt, just zoom out. If in doubt, just zoom out. Let's pray. God, for all of our stories this Christmas season, for all the ways that we're wrestling with different emotions, maybe it's a family situation, a relational thing, maybe it's a work thing, maybe it's a faith thing, maybe it could be anything. In the moments where we feel lost, when we're just down into that one point of the map that we just don't understand, help us to zoom out. Help us to get that perspective of your grand story. Thank you that you're shaping it, have shaped it, will shape it. Amen. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. You can give online at southfellowship.org give or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks for listening, South family. Have a great rest of your day.